in your book, you make a strong case for the nature side of the nature versus nurture debate. And you showcase how genes really affect so much of who we are and so much of the different traits that we have, whether it's things like personality, weight, height, eye color, even autism. So tell us a little bit about what it means for genes to influence these traits. And I think one of the terms that is most often misunderstood here is heritability. So what is heritability exactly? Okay, let's start with that. Although you mentioned about three or four topics there, each of which I could lecture on for an hour. So I'll try and keep it brief, but it's probably good to start with heritability because at one level, everybody knows what you mean. If I ask, if you ask people, is eye color heritable? Is height heritable? Most people would say, yeah, yeah, it's pretty heritable. And they sort of know what you mean. They're talking about genetic differences between people that make them different for some observed characteristic. And that's really what heritability is about. But it's a bit trickier because it, um, we all learn about genetics from Mendel. And, you know, Mendel studied seven characteristics of the pea plant. But the thing is, those were single gene disorders. They're really mutations in the pea plant. If, if you were a pea plant, your seeds would be round and smooth. But if you had this mutation, they'd be wrinkled. It's one gene that's necessary and sufficient. It's a mutation that causes this disorder, you know, wrinkled seeds. And that's the way people learn about genetics. And there are thousands of single gene disorders. However, they're all very, very rare. Like one in, a, a common ones are one in 10,000, but most often they're one in 500,000, one in a million or less. So they're very, very rare, devastating for the people who have them. But in terms of explaining differences between people in a population, like why do people differ in height? They, they account for next to no variance, that is next to none of those differences in the population. So that's where the definition of heritability becomes harder for people to understand. We're not talking about one gene and determinism. We're talking about complex traits and common disorders, like all the medical disorders, hypertension, heart disease, everything is influenced genetically, but not by a single gene, but by thousands of tiny effects of genes. And that's important because it makes it switch from a deterministic system like a single gene, which is necessary and sufficient for the development of a disorder, switch from that to a probabilistic perspective that is talking about propensities rather than predetermined programming. So that's one important distinction with heritability. The other that people mess up is to think, well, if I tell you that height is 90% heritable, you know, people think right away, I grew 90% because of my genes and 10% by the environment, but that isn't it. We're talking about differences in a population. Why am I six feet, four inches tall, and other people are shorter? It's about differences in a population at a particular time. So we're describing those differences. They're always normally distributed for these complex traits. You know, that looks like that bell-shaped curve. And then we're saying, of those differences, that variance in the population, to what extent are genetic differences important? And by that, I mean inherited DNA differences. And to what extent are those differences due to the environment, nature and nurture? And for the, and 
A couple other caveats I'll just get in at this point is that we're describing what is in a particular population, not what could be. So uh, people are surprised to find weight is highly heritable. That means that the differences between people and body mass index, most of those differences are due to inherited DNA differences. But that doesn't mean you can't do anything about it. You can't change it. It's just saying, given um, our fast food culture and being bombarded by advertising and food cues, and also with a lot of people like me dieting all the time, what, to what extent are those environmental differences causing the differences that we see? And the answer many people are surprised by is that about 70% of the differences of the variance between people and body mass index is due to inherited DNA differences. But that obviously doesn't mean you can't lose weight. I mean, if you don't eat, you're going to lose weight. But so it's hard to get people to understand that distinction between what is and what could be. And then one last caveat is that we're talking about the normal range of variation. That is, we're talking about what we can study. And in our samples, well, they're quite representative, maybe 98% of the population. But I'm interested in developmental phenomena. And you just don't get parents who are severely abusing or neglecting their children participating in psychological studies. So we can only describe what we study. That's always true of all research, not just genetic research. But you can't generalize beyond that to say, okay, you say genetics is very important, but what about abuse and neglect? Well, all bets are off, but you could well imagine that that causes tremendous damage. So I'll stop there because otherwise right. I'll keep going. No, you made uh, some really, really great points. I think that, you know, for instance, with height, we can have genes for being tall, but a child who grows up malnourished isn't going to fulfill, you know, that genetic potential. And the same for weight. You know, we might have the propensity to to be uh, very aware of food cues, as you call them, uh, but with a healthy diet and lifestyle, which might be more difficult for some people just in terms of the discipline, right? That there's also a personality component here. But that doesn't mean they can't reach their goals. It might be more difficult. Uh, they might have a gene, you know, that affects how satiated they, they are. You know, the, there's so many things that can come into play here. But we definitely have control. I think it's really important to just think about these things of our as our starting point, you know, as our propensities, uh, and to know how to work around them and with them. It's part of understanding who we are. But you know, on the height example, what's important then is to recognize that. Despite the fact that you can screw kids up, you know, even in terms of height by being nutritionally um, deprived. But it's, it's interesting to know that in all the populations we study, at least 90% of the differences in height are due to inherited DNA. That means most of the differences in height are not due to any environmental factors, let alone deprivation. So it's again, it's a question of what is versus what could be. But it's kind of nice to note that it, those environmental factors like deprivation and it can't be a big factor in causing individual differences in height in the current populations. I think the distinction here between, you know, these correlations that we see on a, a population level versus talking about the individual differences, I think that we 
we can often mix these things up when we talk about genetics. And I think that's one of the things that really confuses people when yeah. we're talking about heritability. That's such an important point is that we're talking about differences between individuals in a population. And as you point out, that doesn't tell us anything about the causes of average differences between populations, nor does it tell us about secular changes. You know, for, for example, height is highly heritable, but when Japanese came to America, their offspring in one generation were two inches taller on average than their parents. Now that clearly is not caused by genetics. Genetics can't change that fast. So that's an example of a secular change. And I think a lot of secular changes we see, which it almost seems to be going in the bad, wrong direction, doesn't it? You know, like more depression, more infertility, you know, more of a lot of bad things, but those are average changes in the population. And it doesn't mean that, doesn't say anything about individual differences, nor does individual differences say anything about average differences. So with the Japanese example, the heritability of height in those offspring who are two inches taller on average than their parents, the Japanese parents who came to America, the heritability in those offspring is just the same. It's still 90%. It's just on average, something happened probably to everyone. And some people think it's different nutrition or better neonatal care. We're talking about the 40s and 50s at that point. So that... Uh, I. I hate to go off on another diversion like that, but it, that's such an important point that you raise about the, the distinction between individual differences in a population and average differences between a population. One of the studies that has really shown us the difference in the influence of environment versus genes are twin studies and adoption studies, right? What have you found there in terms of how important genes are? Right. Well, the twin and adoption method was uh, first thought about 100 years ago, and there's been millions, literally millions of twins and adoptees that have been studied in research. So it's not just me, but this research was starting to come along in the 30s, but then with the Second World War and Nazi Germany, it was cut out. And in psychology, in America more than Europe, it became very environmentalistic. That is, couldn't even talk about genetic influences. It was thought that everything is due to nurture. That is particularly what your mother did to you in the first years of life because of Freud. And um, so the studies were kind of trickling in, but then I, you know, even schizophrenia was thought to be caused by what your mother did to you in the first few years of life. And that mother blaming was very, right. but in this, I think people then, you know, you couldn't hold back a realism that said, no, wait a minute, it, it isn't all due to the environment. I mean, clearly, when I, it, there's a great saying, when parents have, if parents are environmentalists until they have more than one child, you know, even at the experiential level of having kids, you say, well, I can explain what happened to the first kid, but when the second kid comes along and is so different, I know I didn't do that, you know? Kids are different from very early in right. life. So I think... Uh, and also in psychiatry, you know, you know, um, two kids with the same background, you know, growing up in the same family, one becomes schizophrenic and the other doesn't. Why? Well, genetics predicts that kids in a family are different because they're only 50% similar genetically. They're 50% different genetically. So if I think for lots of reasons, 
the, the, this dam of environmentalism started to break down in the 70s and 80s. And then in, in the 70s, there were much bigger and better studies because there was such antipathy even to talk about genetics that you needed bigger and better studies to convince people. And in the 70s, when I was in graduate school in psychology, you couldn't even talk about genetics. Nowhere in my undergraduate career did I read the word genetics ever. And then in the 70s, especially the 80s and the 90s, the mountain of data from twin and adoption studies just became overwhelming. And you had to be a nutter not to accept that there's genetic <laughs> influence on behavior. In fact, now we've got to worry about the other side. You know, people are thinking it's all genetic or they misconstrue heritability to mean it's determined. Well, I can't do anything about it. I can't do anything about my kids. It's all genetic. Well, that isn't true either. But right. yeah, so I think things have changed tremendously. And the twin method was important. I think most people are aware that um, there's two types of twins. One third of all twins are identical twins, which are called in science monozygotic because they're a single fertilized egg. So that has the it has comes from the same DNA, and then in the first few days of life, that zygote splits into two. So they have identical DNA, um, and then they grow up in the same family. Um, but as opposed to the compared to the other type of twin, which are called fraternal twins or dizygotic, two zygotes, they're just separately fertilized eggs that, like any brother and sister, they're 50% similar genetically, but they're a perfect comparison to identical twins because they grow up in the same womb at the same time in the same family. And so the essence of the twin method is that if a trait is heritable, you'd expect that identical, you have to predict that identical twins will be more similar than fraternal twins because the identical twins are twice as similar genetically. And you can use the extent to which identical twins are more similar than non-identical twins, fraternal twins, as a way of estimating how big is the heritable effect. So if for height, for example, we found that identical twins correlate 0.9, a correlation is statistic that goes from zero, meaning no relationship, to one, which means a perfect relationship. So identical twins correlate about 0.9, you know, which is, um, we, we talk about test-retest reliability. If we test your height even, especially your weight, but even your height a year from now, there are slight differences. You know, it won't be a perfect correlation between you and your own height a year ago. You know, even measurement error, you know, it's not perfectly easy. And, you know, so anyway, the reliability of height isn't 100%. It's maybe 0.98 or something. It's very high. Um, but now, if you had fraternal twins and you found their correlation was 0.9, well, that would mean there's no genetic influence. They're just as similar as identical twins. But in fact, their correlation is 0.45, meaning that they're only half as similar in height as our identical twins. And that huge difference between 0.9 and 0.45 is what allows us to estimate heritability of height as 90%. And we can do that for other traits like weight, I mentioned, is 70% heritable. And the surprise is that we've gone from not thinking anything in psychology is heritable in the 70s to now issuing the challenge to find any trait that does not show 
significant genetic influence. So the first law of behavioral genetics is everything is heritable. Some things a bit more than others. Cognitive abilities are more like 60%. Personality is more like 40%. And 40% isn't 100%. But if you put everything we know in psychology together to predict your personality, if you explain 5% of the variance, I'd be surprised. So 40% is amazing. And it's especially amazing because <laughs> this is the DNA with which you began life as a single cell, the combination of your father's sperm and your mother's egg. That DNA is now the same DNA in every cell of your body. And for you, it's 20, 30 years later, that same DNA is reverberating in making you who you are as an individual. I think it's just astounding, really, to think of all the biological noise and complexity of development, let alone the environments that you have to deal with. To have that show up so much later in life is just, to me, mind-boggling. I agree. I agree. And I found it very interesting that you said that we become more of who we are as we age. Our yeah. genes affect us more, even though we've been exposed to more environments, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, that, yeah, that's a, a good example of what we want in psychology. We have many findings that are just, yeah, okay. You know, it, it's often said your grandmother knew that. But here's one. If you have, <laughs> well, do you think genetic influence becomes more important or less important as you go through life? And once people understand you're talking about differences between individuals in a population and all the things we went through, if they understand what heritability is, most people would say, well, it goes down because as you, your DNA is the same. And as you go through life, you're picking up all these experiences, accidents, illnesses, Shakespeare's slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. These environmental differences at build up, accumulate, so that they increasingly account for differences in, uh, say, behavior. But so what's interesting here is when heritability changes in development from infancy to childhood to adulthood, the differences are always increasing. That, that is, the heritability is always increasing. And the most striking example of that is for cognitive ability, where if you measure, you know, I, I assume people know cognitive ability, a.k.a. intelligence, learning ability, you know, it goes by many different names, but I think everybody sort of knows what we mean by that. Abstract reasoning, problem solving, that sort of thing. We can go into the measurement of it, but it kind of bores me because it really is very well measured. <laughs> you hear about people saying, oh, intelligence tests is just what intelligence tests measure. You know, it doesn't mean anything. I mean, but that's ridiculous. One of the points you raise in the book is the fact that cognitive abilities tend to correlate with one another. If you're good at reading, you're going to probably be better at math as well than others. And, uh, you know, general intelligence, IQ, usually uh, brings with it um, a whole host of different cognitive abilities. So to say that intelligence tests only measure what they measure, they're measuring something which correlates with a whole a bunch of different abilities. So yeah. just on that, you know, there, there's a lot to this research. Yeah. And um, the concept of intelligence is often called G, little g, which means general cognitive ability. And it's because, as you say, despite what you might think, you know, you might think you're good verbally and you're not so good quantitatively, but you are actually. 
compared to the rest of the population. Maybe you're a bit better in verbal than quantitative, but if you're very good in verbal, you're going to be pretty good in these other skills, um, memory and perceptual speed, spatial ability, everything. And that's what Spearman meant by G when he defined it in 1904. So, you know, 20 some, 120 some years ago, it was defined. And it's the most studied and robust concept in psychology, despite the fact that people don't like it, mostly because, you know, it's like kill the messenger. They don't like some of the things that intelligence tells us about people. And it is, you know, it is problem, you know, it's sort of pejorative. I mean, you know, you, you could accept, okay, maybe you're not the most well-adjusted person, or maybe you're sort of depressed or, you know, any other personality psychopathology thing. You can sort of handle that. You know, I'm a little high on the autistic spectrum or ADHD, but to be low on intelligence is something that's hard to bear. And I find increasingly it's hard for parents, university educated parents, it's hard for them to understand that their kids are 50% like them genetically, but 50% different. And that means that a lot of university educated parents, when they're both highly intelligent, they're going to have kids first who are on average substantially lower than them in IQ. And second, that if they have more than one child, those children will differ a lot in intelligence. So, you know, everybody has to deal with this. And I, I think one thing we need to do is to move away from this golden yardstick of academic university intelligence and to recognize that, you know, there's a lot of other good qualities in life. And, and also that being highly intelligent doesn't make you happy. There's not much correlation. In fact, some people suggest it's a negative correlation because you're more prone to existential dilemmas and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And I think this is a really important point. The race that happens to universities, kids in high school are obsessed with taking AP classes and their SATs, uh, though a lot of universities are uh, taking that out these days because of the diversity and inclusion nonsense. But, but I think that there's still a lot of pressure on children to excel academically. And not everyone is intellectual or bookish or, you know, has an aptitude for math. And usually those same people do have amazing abilities that, that aren't uh, utilized, whether it's a uh, real aptitude for social interactions. You know, that's, that's a skill that not everyone has. And some very intelligent people don't have that. So someone who's very good with people, I would, I would encourage parents to, to develop that because that's an asset. Or that's if it's um, more mechanics and, you know, people who, who have a real knack for working with their hands, for engineering, for understanding how, you know, the physical world works, uh, that doesn't necessarily come easily to someone who's uh, very good at abstract math. Finding what your child is good at, what they're interested in, what, what comes naturally to them, and, and really encouraging that and facilitating the development of that, I think is a much healthier route. I couldn't agree more. That is sort of the message and blueprint of the four pages on parenting got more attention than everything else put together. 
and we probably get into it, but you know, the basic message is parents don't have as much control as they think over their kids. And the implication of saying the, the most, the, 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 the most systematic force making your children who they are, isn't your parenting, it's your genes. And the implication of that though, is exactly what you're saying. It means that we need to find out what kids like to do and what they do well. Increasingly, I think it's those appetites, what people like to do, that's every bit as, import, as important as you know, your ability, because the ability, you know, it's a virtuous circle. If you like doing things, you get better at it. Okay, even if you're not the world's best at it, you get better. And in the end, that appetite is very important. So the trick for parents is to think about themselves as resource managers and finding out what, giving their kids opportunities to find out what they like to do in contrast to the idea that children are a blob of clay that parents mold to be what they want them to be. And there still are a lot of parents who think they're going to make their kid be what they want them to be. And that's a disaster. You know, it's like if you get in a relationship with somebody, you say, well, they're all right, but I'm going to shape them up and make them what I want them to be. And you do things for them because you want to make them into what you want them to be. You know, it's crazy. But if you that's what a lot of parents think their job is for kids. And it screws up their relationship. And, you know, I, I just can't encourage parents, young parents enough to, to, to get the genetic message. You know, in, in the 10,000 books, literally on childbearing, you don't find one that talks about genetics. And I think the single most important message for parents is genetics. You got to realize genetics is important. And doesn't mean you don't do anything for your kids. It means that you do things for them because you love them and you want life to be nice to them. So you say, well, if you act like that to other people, people are going to dump on you. You know, you've got to be nice. And also then you give the kid experiences not to make them be what you want them to be, but give them the opportunity to find out what they like to do and to help them do it. You know, to make them become who they are in a way. And I think that's a tremendous, tremendously positive humanistic message for parents. You know, your kids are people and part of the enjoyment is watching them become who they are. And that's genetics. I couldn't agree more. I think that is really a humanistic message. And I think it takes the pressure off in a certain sense. A lot. Yeah, we want to give them resources. We want to, as you said, expose them to experiences where they can, you know, experiment with the world and are able to find what actually interests them. I like to call it following your nose. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're uh, locking in on something that actually interests you, you don't need willpower. You have endless motivation and energy isn't a problem. And you can, you know, my husband tells me as uh, he was growing up, he would just spend all day building Legos, morning to evening. He would forget to eat unless he was told to. And that did it for him. Uh, and, and, you know, other kids uh, couldn't care less. Other kids want to draw. Other kids want to read. Other kids, you know, want to play outside, whatever it is. Uh, but I think finding that spark and giving them opportunities to develop that, I think, is amazing. And really taking the pressure off of, you know, you don't need to mold them to be the next person who cures cancer. <laughs> you need to just 
let them become who they were meant to be in the healthiest way possible. Because of course, there are uh, attachment issues that people can develop. Uh, and maybe there's a genetic propensity. I wouldn't be surprised if it has to do with emotional reactivity and sensitivity to social cues and things like that. But you can definitely um, ease their way through the social world uh, while helping them manifest their genetic potential. On that sense, of, on that um, reducing the pressure, I think that is such an important point because it, it irritates me a lot that um, the childbearing books, the parenting books, and also what you read in the newspapers, it's all, this, it's all preying on the natural anxiety of young parents, but giving them the message, you know, one false move and your kid's going to be screwed up. And you dispel some of that by looking at two parent read, uh, parenting books. One will say very dogmatically by Dr. So-and-so that you must do this, you know, it's tremendously. But then you'll read another one that says the opposite. This stuff is not right. science-based. It's not evidence-based. There's very little we know on an evidential basis, you know, a scientific basis as to what parents should and should not do. I mean, there's a, a book by um, this wonderful economist, um, Emily Duncan, I think it is, who a few years ago, she, she was editor at um, uh, 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 the Economics News Weekly thing. I forget what it's called. And um, when she became pregnant, she decided, you know, she'd look into this stuff. And she was appalled by how bad the advice was. And she wrote a book on it called Crib Sheet, which is a brilliant book. The idea in Eng I don't know if it's true in, uh, in America or, or other English-speaking countries, but in, in England, that means a cheat sheet, crib sheet. Right, right. And of course, it also means a crib sheet, you know, for, for babies. And um, she ended up concluding the only, there's only one thing you can tell parents that is totally evidentially based and there's no room for argument. And that is vaccinate your kids. But all wow. this about childbearing, you know, what do you do if your kid's not sleeping at night? And and she ends up just, she's not into genetics, but she ends up kind of edging into the idea. The reason you can't give blanket advice to people is kids are so different. You know, some kids, well, you just have to respond to them on an individual basis. And you as their parent, 50% related to them genetically, is probably in the best position, if you think about it and you're sensitive to it, to respond in your child's appropriate way. And that means being different for one kid and the other kid that you have, you know? So I think there are some very good messages exactly. in genetics. But, uh, but the, the main message yeah. you said about taking the pressure off of parents and getting angry with these journalists who take advantage of parents' anxiety. Because if you look at the newspapers, you'll see every article on parenting is saying, parents who do this have kids who turn out badly that way, you know? And it's so wrong. And you can just bet it's not true. One of the most famous child psychologists, Donald Winnicott, uh, he coined the phrase, uh, the good enough mother. And, you know, it, it, he was um, working off something that Freud had written. But the idea was that uh, a child doesn't need a perfect mother. He needs a good enough mother that empathizes with the child's needs most of the time, not all of the time to also help the child, you know, gain independence and develop. But uh, we really, I think that the very dogmatic uh, kind of parenting books 
are are definitely problematic. And about the sleeping thing, uh, we have friends who just uh, had a, another baby, a second baby, and her, their first was up all night for a whole year. You know, they did not get any yeah. sleep. And the second baby sleeps through the night. <laughs> Same parents. Uh, nothing, nothing much was different, but it's, it's really due to genetics. And the most we can do is be responsive to the particular needs of the child. And one of the things on that, which I found really interesting, is you make the distinction between shared versus non-shared environment. And this idea that part of our environmental influence is also, to some extent, genetically influenced because we select specific environments, we shape our environments, we elicit different uh, responses from our parents, different attitudes. So tell us a little bit about what does shared versus non-shared environments mean? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is the other major point of um, my book, Blueprint. The first point being that the major systematic cause making you who you are as an individual is inherited DNA differences. But as I mentioned, psychological traits, for example, the heritability goes from about 40% for personality to maybe 60% for cognitive abilities. But on average, all psychological traits, and we're talking about hundreds of traits and thousands of studies, show an average heritability of 50%. Now, as I said, in psychology, 50, explaining 50% of the variance is off the scale, but it is only 50%. It's not 100%. And the, the rest of the variance is called environmental, but it more literally should be called non-genetic. So we estimate with twin and adoption studies, and I realize I didn't really describe the adoption method, but it's you know, basically looking at biological, bi biologically related individuals reared apart who are similar only because of genetics versus environmentally related people like adopted parents and their adopted children who aren't genetically related. There were the three um, identical twins, right, or triplets, really, uh, who didn't know each other, uh, were all adopted by different families, and they had the same interests, they looked the same, mm -hmm. and they all had a propensity for depression. You know, they were very, very similar, and they, uh, by accident, met. So it's amazing. And, and, yeah, I really recommend that film, which won Sundance a few years ago, called Three Identical Strangers, as you say, about sometimes identical twins, like one in 5,000 times, identical twins is a, a, a one zygote separates in the first few days of life. Sometimes one of those zygotes separate again. So you get three identical individuals, very rare, but that was a particularly striking case. And the worst part of it was not only um, did the environments not make a difference. They were intentionally placed in as different environments as you could. One of the wealthiest families in the New York area, uh, a, a rather poor family, and then a middle family where the parent was a school teacher, for example. And so that's the second half of that film, Three Identical Strangers, which is very bad. You might ask, how is it they were placed in these homes that were so different? And it turns out there's at right, least, that wouldn't get through an ethics board these days. You know, that was in the <laughs> before ethics boards. Exactly right. But it was really wicked because this psychiatrist thought it would be the perfect nature-nurture experiment, putting them in as different environments as you could. He did it because he thought this would absolutely then prove the importance of nurture over nature. He never published it. And you know why? Because it was just the opposite. It just, as you said, 
it, it just shows Incredible. so obviously how strong genetic influence is despite these big differences in environment. Yeah, so that's a good point. I brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up. But that isn't so much, that's a, as that shows you the importance of genetics. And it's sort of in a negative way says these environmental differences didn't make much of a difference. But we can do a lot better than that. And in studies of twins and adoptees, not with the dramatic condition of being reared apart, but just reared together, you can, we, we can show that heritability is 50%. But what comes out of this data consistently is that although the environment's important, 50% of the variance is not due to genetics. It's not the environment we always thought was important from Freud onwards. Basically, it's not nurture. It's not the fact of growing up in the same family. Whatever it is, it's making two kids growing up in the same family as different as kids raised in different families. And that is amazing. And so we call this mysterious influence that makes kids in a family different from one another non-shared environment. Shared environment is the nurture. It's the idea of, yeah, you're similar to your sibling because you grew up in the same family, went to the same schools, lived in the same neighborhoods. But no, those factors are not important. Genetics explains why family members are similar. The environment is responsible for why they're different. And you can think of things that make kids growing up in a family different. And for 30 years, We've been trying to find them. You can think of parents. 98% um, of all developmental psychology studied one kid in a family because it was so assumed that, without even thinking about it, that the family is this monolithic unit. You know, you've got the parents and there's the kids and parents do their parenting thing and that's the kid. But when you study more than one kid in the family, you find that even things like divorce are experienced very differently by kids in a family. So that could be important. And if you, if you study families closely enough, you find that even parenting differs for two kids. You know, in, in your cups, you'll find that most parents, you know, a bit drunk, is in your cups is what we say in England, is um, <laughs> you find that um, parents will admit one kid is just more cuddly in a way, sort of more lovable than the other kid. It doesn't mean you don't love the other kid, but you know, some kids just aren't as easy to love. I think you know one of the interesting things here is a child who's more emotionally reactive, mm -hmm. knows prone to crying fits, is going to elicit a very different reaction from a parent who from from a parent than a child who has a more happy-go-lucky attitude. So, as you said, you know, these things really do elicit different parenting styles from yeah. the same parents. Now, that gets into the next point you mentioned, which I call nature of nurture. That is that genetics is involved in our environmental, the way we interact with the environment. So that I, I think you're absolutely right. To a large extent, parenting correlates with kids' outcomes, not because the parenting caused the outcome, but rather that parents are responding to genetic differences in their kids. And that's this issue of nature of nurture. But just to finish off on the non-shared environment thing, despite the reasonableness of looking at parenting differences between kids as a source of non-shared environment or anything else, you can study anything, peers, you know, friends that they have, 
um, differ between siblings, but you've then got to say, to what extent do they make a difference in kids' developmental outcomes? And the answer there is not very much, but then you need the last step, which is this nature of nurture thing. It could be that parenting differences correlate with kids' differences in their outcomes, not because of environmental causation, but because of genetic mediation in two ways. One is that parents and children are 50% similar genetically. So right off the bat, you ought to think about the possibility that genetics is involved in correlations between parenting and kids' outcomes. But secondly, and I think increasingly, I, I think this is more important even, that parents, good parents are responding to differences in their kids. And that should, that's as it should be, really. And increasing that'll happen as parents recognize that their kids are genetically different. So that's the topic of nature of nurture. And it started in the 1980s when I accidentally included an environmental measure, a parenting measure. We went in in the homes of these infant kids and observed the parents, and it was part of an adoption study. And I accidentally put it into what we call a genetic model fitting design, where we put data together for kids and parents, adopt and adoptive and non-adoptive parents. And this measure of parenting, a very good observational measure and interview measure, ended up showing substantial, significant heritability. You think, whoa, an environmental measure, how can that show genetic influence? But you know, now, flashing forward 30 years, we know that most of the environmental measures, so-called environmental measures used in psychology, show genetic influence. And I hope by now, listeners will understand why that could be. Because if you look at the environmental, so-called environmental measures in psychology, they're things like stress, life, life events, for example, stress. Well, what's on these life events measures? You know, it's not the way we think of environment as the environment's out there and it happens to us. You know, we're just passively receiving these environments. But with a moment's thought, you realize that's not the environment or our experience. It's how we use the environment that's important. So with these life events measure, measures, the biggest items are things like getting in conflicts with people, having financial problems. These aren't the environment out there happening to poor us. You know, this is us interacting with our environments, and that's where the genetics comes in. So on average, psychological traits are 50% heritable. But on average, these environmental measures, including parenting, life events, social support, are 25% heritable. So there's a significant genetic component. And that means when you correlate things like life events with depression measures, it's hard to resist interpreting that correlation causally, even though I'm sure most of your listeners know the um, saying that causation, uh, correlation does not imply causation. It's hard not to interpret it environmentally, but a correlation between life events and depression could easily be that depressed people view their environments in a, in a more negative way or actually experience the environments more negatively or the environments are actually more shit for them because people aren't going to be at their best dealing with you as a downer. You know, so you can't. What I'd like people to understand most from this 
chat that we're having is to always say, yeah, but what about genetics? So when you read about a correlation between parenting and children's outcomes, just say, what about genetics? And as a test case, let's do a little quiz now. You'll always read that in, in newspapers or whatever, parents who read a lot to their kids have kids who do well in reading at school. And it, without this talk, most people would say, yeah, well, of course, you know, you read a lot to the kids, they learn to read, you're a good role model, and then they read better when they go to school. So if we could stop for a second and just have people think, what about genetics? You know, so I hope people can see. You made the uh, provocative observation that, you know, it's often said that a girl who grows up with a father who cheats on her mother or just leaves the family at some point, she's more likely to become promiscuous herself because she grew up with that kind of father figure. And you made the observation, you know, the genes here have a lot to say. The fact that her father had the types of genes who that make him more uh, risk-taking and promiscuous might have been transferred to his daughter. Uh, so provocative, but, uh, you know, something to think about. Well, and actually there are twin studies and adoption studies showing that divorce itself, it, most people think interesting, of that interesting. as an environmental measure. But now you just say, what about genetics? And as you're saying, divorce, it isn't just something that happens to you, obviously. You know, you're in a relationship with someone, you get married. What makes some people get divorced and others not? Well, it could be shit happens, but it could also more likely be, you know, relations grow and they fall apart and people grow differently. And the thing I wonder about, and, the, and some evidence backs this up, is having been divorced three times myself, I can sort of speak to this, and that um, something that, uh, traits that make you attractive as a, in a mating situation, like you're saying, sort of risk-taking away, but spontaneity, joie de vivre, maybe that doesn't translate right. very to long-term relationships. So it may be the very things that genetically make you a good prospect, make you a bad partner, it could be. But there is some evidence for that, that personality traits of risk-taking, extroversion, activity level, energy, you know, you're just interesting, right? And I remember when I was growing up, I found women who were kind of crazy interesting. And again, you know, people who are kind of nuts um, are very interesting. You notice them, you know, but you can ima well imagine there that that is not very predictive of a good long-term stable relationship. Right. You know, I always thought of novelty seeking as, as something that makes monogamy really difficult. You know, I have friends who... I can really tell they're high in novelty seeking. They love change. They like to go with the flow. They don't like to make plans. They like to be spontaneous. And I have friends who, you know, they love to make plans. And if something is familiar, they like it better. And I think that, you know, that trait itself would make uh, monogamy considerably, uh, you know, more difficult if you're high in novelty seeking. And at some point, you know, the... Um, the initial novelty and excitement of the relationship wears off and you're in that familiar intimate zone you know someone who's not geared towards that 
will it will be more difficult uh, for sure, for sure. Uh, moving into personality, which I would love to talk a little bit about because, you know, as you said, uh, personality is at least a forty percent heritable, and there's talk, you know, whether or not personality uh, is genetic, whether we can. Uh, change our personality, whether an introvert can become an extrovert. And what I've always thought is that we really are born with our temperament and our personality. And what we do have control over, I like to call character development. You know, if you're an introvert, you can work on your social skills, um, but you're never going to be like an extrovert who just gets a dopamine hit from, you know, being around a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine. We're all adapted for certain things. Uh, but understanding that our personality really is, you know, deeply ingrained. It has to do with our physiological wiring. It makes us perceive the world differently. It makes us react to situations differently. And there's a big, big genetic component. So mm -hmm. what have you found in terms of, you know, personality traits uh, whether it's the big five or Isaac, uh, you know, for anyone who's not familiar, the extroversion, psychoticism and neuroticism. What have you found are the most heritable traits? Right. Well, that was the question that got me started in genetics. Um, I um, worked with mice when I first went to graduate school because they're very powerful. They have these inbred strains of mice and selected lines of mice. And uh, you can manipulate the environment, manipulate the genome in a way. Um, so very powerful techniques, but like about 50% of the people who work with mice, I developed a severe allergy to them because in those days, in the 70s, it was before health and safety. And I, as a graduate student, was consigned to literally a closet where I was breeding these mice. Oh my. No ventilation. And it's now thought that maybe... 25% of the population would develop an allergy given that intense exposure to mice, which have this dander as part of the pheromones that they communicate with. And it's very powerful in, um, well, they don't create al allergic reaction, but if you have any vulnerability at all to uh, that sort of allergic response, you'll get it if you work with them in that situation. So then, right. Interesting. then Interesting. you're in graduate school and I say, well, what am I going to do now? And so I was interested in behavioral genetics because I went to the University of Texas at Austin, which was the only place in the world at that time that had a course in behavioral genetics, just to show you how environmentalistic psychology was in those days. And I was floored by it, you know? I just thought, God, it's so powerful. And how is it possible I never heard about genetics in my psychology undergraduate degree? So I was keen on it. And... I was interested in personality. I was working with someone, Arnold Buss, who studied personality and its relationship to psychopathology. And so I thought what would be cool is to get away from self-report questionnaires, which is basically how we measure personality. And to think, because I was interested in development, what about young kids? Well, the neat thing about young kids is you can't give them personality questionnaires. You have to study them by observing them. You can ask their parents to rate them. You can ask daycare teachers to rate them. So you get a completely different way of approaching the problem. And what, and what we found from that early research on temperament, uh, temperament is often thought of as early appearing, that is early developing personality traits. And these aren't your sophisticated traits of, um, uh, of psychoticism, 
you know, dealing with basic sort of animal differences of personality that you see in all mammals, for example. Right, like reactivity and approach and uh, avoidance and things like that. Yes. So I was interested in asking whether those things would be more heritable than later personality traits. And after 10 years of research, I think we conclude, no, they're, they're heritable. And it's interesting, they're heritable early in life. For example, the most heritable trait very early in life in infancy is shyness. And even though we think of kids, you know, in the first year or so of life or at two years of age, you know, when a stranger comes, they hide behind their mother. You know, so all kids are, they go through phases of being more or less shy. But if you see enough kids, you realize huge differences in shyness. Like I observed twins in their homes at 15 months of age. And, you know, it's really quite striking. I would try to go in in a standard procedure. And we had a guy videotaping as well behind me. It's just amazing how some of those kids, they hid behind their mother the whole time I was there for like an hour and a half. Whereas other kids, they immediately came running up and they're jumping on you, you know? So it's really quite striking how different kids are, even very early in life, which is kind of important because that reinforces this notion I said about parents being environmentalists until they have more than one child. You know, you really do, when you're looking at twins, you really do see those differences, you know, and especially with fraternal twins who are 50% different genetically. So temperament is a thing that is personality differences early in life. They're heritable, but not much more heritable than other personality traits later in life. So altogether then, most personality traits are heritable. And you can find evidence for a bit more heritability for the traits Ising studied, extroversion and, and neuroticism. And neuroticism there doesn't mean being neurotic. It just means emotional lability. You know, um, some people are, are just more labile, not just in terms of fear, but even in terms of anger, you know, that you just have a more up and down sort of right. system. Volatility. Volatility is exactly the word. That's right. Yeah. But those are maybe 45, 50% heritable and other traits like, say, there's hundreds of personality traits, but one that shows less heritability is, say, femininity, masculinity. You know, that kind of gets into the gender war things here where, you know, gender is something that, you know, I can, I can decide to dress in a more feminine fashion or a more masculine fashion. Probably doesn't change who I am. It certainly doesn't change whether I'm a man or a woman, for God's sake. I'm interested in that. You know, the fact that I always thought that prenatal development and exposure to hormones really has a big impact. And I guess that might be genetic, but not necessarily. Uh, But you're saying that it's less heritable than people would assume? It's one of the least heritable personality traits, but we're still talking about 30% heritability. So that's still a lot of genetic. Right, okay. So it's not that it's not heritable, but, um, it, you know, I was just trying to give you the, the extremes of this, you know, less heritable femininity. Right, right. Neuroticism. But the basic message is it's all moderately heritable, explaining quite a bit of variance, at least compared to everything else we know. And if you take like hormones, um, they don't really predict masculinity very much. There's been quite a few studies on that on testosterone. And it's a reasonable assumption that difference males who have more testosterone are maybe more male-like, you know, more aggressive. An issue here that I didn't raise before is we define heritability very narrowly. 
it's inherited DNA differences from those differences in DNA sequence in the first cell with which it began life. Everything else is called environmental. It, it's a better word is non-genetic. It just isn't genetic. So heritability is defined very narrowly, but the environment is defined incredibly broadly to be everything else. Whereas if you say environmental, people right away think of how your mother treated you in the first few years of life. But certainly right. differences and epigenetic differences, they all contribute to this non-genetic component of variance. Interesting. So you would categorize epigenetic influences as non-genetic? Yes. You know, it, it could be that differences in some, you know, it's just it, epigenetic isn't this magical word. And for uh, a few years ago, there was a joke that what's the answer to any question you don't know? And it's epigenetics <laughs> because, right, right. you know, epi means above. So it's somehow above genetics and, and it's sort of non-Mendelian. You know, it's, it's some idea that there are these things that are more important than genetic, but it's just not the case. It's a type of, you know, genes are just dumb sequences of the spiral staircases of DNA, you know, and in 1966, they figured out that the code for DNA is this three steps in the spiral staircase, you know, each spiral staircase is a four letter alphabet, A, C, T's and J's, and three of those steps in a row code for an amino acid. And they're of uniquely of the 20 amino acids. And by putting those amino acids together in a particular sequence, that's how you get a protein. And that's all we are, neurotransmitters, everything in our body, we're, we're these proteins. And it's all coded by DNA. But the DNA only, it doesn't do anything by itself. It needs to be transcribed and translated by RNA, you know, ribonuclease. And that so it gets translated, and unless the gene is translated, and it doesn't do anything, right? It doesn't do anything by itself sitting there on the DNA. But the RNA is regulating the transcription of DNA to be responsive to the environment. So RNA actually evolved to be responsive to the environment. DNA evolved to be faithful to our ancestry going back thousands of generations, you know, back a lot, um, you know, of our 3 billion base pairs of DNA, we all differ only by way less than 1%. All the rest of our 3 billion base pairs of DNA for you and me are exactly the same. But 98% of our DNA is the same as chimps. And maybe 90% is the same as, um, well, even bacteria, you can find genes in humans that are very much like bacteria. So DNA was a very cool system, and it, it is the code of life. All living organisms have that same DNA code. But it's one thing to, be, to have evolution to be responsive to your average expected human environment, but that isn't good enough. You need to be responsive to the ongoing changes in your environment, and that's where RNA comes in. So a gene that help, you know, there's a, a gene that is involved, say, in eating. It's, it's one of the bigger genes. It, it only accounts for 1% of the variance in body mass index, but that's one of the biggest effects. And it's um, probably involved in psychological mechanisms, like you mentioned, satiety, feeling full, 
and also responsiveness to food cues. And so people with that one gene will, if you have two copies of that mutation that occurred, say, 10,000 years ago in the human species, you will, on average, be six pounds heavier than people who have two copies of the alternate form of that particular um, mutation. Well, that mutation wouldn't have an effect on your body weight unless it was being transcribed and translated. And the fact that right. has this correlation with body mass index means it has been transcribed. But, but one thing I like to say about DNA, and the reason it's so powerful in predicting behavior now, and this is the real DNA revolution, is you can predict from DNA alone without knowing anything about what goes on in between in terms of expression, in terms of the brain. So you can predict from DNA to behavior or say body mass index without knowing anything about what goes on in between. And sure, as scientists, we'd like to know everything that goes on in between. But if any trait like body mass index has thousands of genes responsible for the heritability, it's not going to be simple to go from genes to brain to behavior. It's a complex process. And I, I like to celebrate right. that we can predict without knowing anything about what goes on between DNA and behavior. Absolutely. One of the things that you mentioned in your book is generalist genes and the fact that uh, many, many genes influence a single trait and also a gene can influence multiple traits. And uh, you, you mentioned also how psychopathologies in this context, they're not these distinct single gene disorders. They're really the extreme ends of normal traits. So tell us about how generalist genes work here and what we've found about how genes influence psychopathologies. Yes. Well, great. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the first point you were making is really called polygenicity, that is, many genes affect any trait. That's what I was saying before about heritability is due to thousands of tiny DNA differences. It could have been different. could have been, as most people thought, as everyone thought in the 90s even, that heritability is due to a few genes. You know, depression, yeah, it's got to involve serotonin, you know, and a few other gene systems. Turns out it's not true. It involves thousands of tiny DNA differences. So if one trait like depression is affected by thousands of genes, well, there aren't enough genes to go around. There's only 20,000, 20, 30,000 so-called genes, that is bits of DNA that are transcribed and translated into amino acid sequences. So what that means is that the, the other side of the coin of polygenicity is what you were referring to as pleiotropy. That is, instead of each trait being influenced by many genes, each gene then will affect many traits. And that's what makes gene-brain behavior pathways so difficult to uncover. But uh, it, it is a, a, a very important point. And that also then suggests what you were saying about generalist genes, that the idea that we're going to find these genes cause this trait and these genes cause that trait, doesn't make any sense when you think about these two major principles of polygenicity and pleiotrope. And what we're finding empirically is that that's really the case. Now that we can put 
these, we haven't really talked about the DNA revolution and genome-wide association studies and polygenic scores, but we can predict behavior like depression, putting thousands of these DNA differences together in what we call a polygenic score. And um, when we do that, when we first did that in, say, 2007 and 2010, the shocking finding was that a polygenic score that predicts, say, bipolar depression, which is a more severe type of depression that involves cycles of mania where you're just wildly happy and uncontrolled to severe depression. That's why it's called bipolar depression. Well, polygenic score for bipolar depression correlated highly with a, a polygenic score for schizophrenia. And the reason this was so shocking was that in psychiatric classification schemes, the first dividing line is between bipolar and schizophrenia. So much so that until the new diagnostic manual came out a few years ago called DSM-5, you couldn't actually be diagnosed as bipolar and schizophrenic because they're completely different and they're assumed to be etiologically different. This whole psychiatric classification system was based on the idea that, you know, you could have committees of people sitting together and saying, well, you need two of those for three months to be schizophrenic and you need four of these other things. You know, it was just kind of historically evolved. And um, what the genetics has shown us is not just that schizophrenia and bipolar are genetically correlated, but everything in the psychiatric classification system is correlated. There aren't genes for schizophrenia versus genes for bipolar or uh, anorexia or ADHD. The same genes are affecting many traits. Now, that, that's not all the heritability, but it's a substantial component. And it was a, a shocking and new finding that people are still trying to come to terms with. And it's called the, the generic sort of bumper sticker for this is P, a little P. I mentioned little G before as general cognitive ability. Little P is general psychopathology. That is, to a large extent, genes that affect psychopathology are general. And whether you develop one type of diagnosed disorder or another is more a matter of the environment than it is genetics. But there are also unique genetic influences on different problems. But the second thing genetics has shown us is what you were talking about with, uh, I call it the bumper sticker, abnormal is normal, dimensions and disorders. I don't think there are any disorders because genetically, if there are thousands of genes that affect a trait, then we're talking about a normal distribution of genetic liability. As opposed to if you had a single gene that caused schizophrenia, well, then you either have that or you don't. It's dichotomous. And that's the way people think about these psychopathologies. And, and it's wrong genetically that it's quantitative, not qualitative. And that isn't just a semantic right. thing. It, it really is very important. And, and I think what's holding back psychiatric research is the medical model. That assumes, you know, the first thing you do is you diagnose people and you say, do you have this disorder or do you not have this disorder? 
But if there is no disorder, if it's a continuum, then a lot of people you're saying are normal are very close to being psychotic and vice versa. You know, people you call schizophrenic are pretty normal. And we know when you experience, when you work with other people with psychopathology, it's not like they wake up one day and they're schizophrenic. And a lot of it has to do with how adaptive they are. My PhD mentor, everyone said he would be locked up if he weren't so bright. He was able to compensate for his <laughs> very weird personality by being so bright and, you know, saying he can control himself when he has to in public, which wasn't the case when he was dealing with his poor graduate student in his office. Right. You know, Mia, for instance, that always seemed to me like the very extreme end of openness, you know, or creativeness, divergent thinking for that matter. You know, people who yeah. really generate new ideas and really like to play with reality. You know, what is schizophrenia? At the end of the day, it's having a very blurred line between reality and imagination. And that is an adaptive trait in certain situations. A lot of artists are very, very creative yeah. and could be said, you know, to to be on that on that verge. Uh, for instance, attention deficit disorder. Uh, where what what trait would you say ADD and ADHD correlate with? Well, it's largely defined in terms of low attention span and high activity level. And, you know, the point you're making is, is exactly what I'm interested in studying now. If the genetic liability is normal, then what about people with high polygenic scores, say for schizophrenia or ADHD? They're not at all diagnosed. Like my highest polygenic score, I have the world's first profile of polygenic scores for psychopathology and a lot of other traits. And my highest polygenic risk score is for obesity. We could talk about that, but more relevant now is the next highest one is for schizophrenia. Now I'm at the 85th percentile in this normal distribution. So it's quite a high score. It's a standard deviation above the mean. It's a way less than 99% and 1% of the population is diagnosed as schizophrenia. But nonetheless, just to the point you're making, I don't know if you were cheating and you knew this research, but when people took polygenics <laughs> in the population, and asked exactly the question you're asking. What about people with high polygenic scores for schizophrenia who aren't at all schizophrenic, which is, you know, a lot of people like me. And what they found is exactly what you're saying, is that people with high polygenic scores were more likely to be in creative professions, novelists, designers, artists. And it could be exactly as you're saying. They can, you know, get this get outside the normal frame, you know, maybe get outside the box of the way people conventionally think about things. And maybe, I mean, it's almost, it's got to be too simplistic, but maybe if you get too far outside the box, you lose touch with reality, which is kind of a defining characteristic of schizophrenia. But I, it's so cool that you mentioned that exactly from an experiential point of view, whereas yeah. there are three studies now that show that what I just said, that high polygenic scores mean you know, you're more creative for schizophrenia. One of the traits that I always think of here is aggression, for instance. And aggression can be channeled into amazing pursuits. It can make, uh, you know, for military generals, 
and it can make for, you know, leadership, people who aren't afraid of being disagreeable. But if you don't channel those same traits into positive areas, you'll get a criminal. So the same traits can have positive and negative manifestations or adaptive and maladaptive manifestations. And it really depends on how we develop those traits and how we integrate them into our lives as social beings. Yes. Well, and that's the other side of um, this phrase uh, that I use, dimension. Disorders are dimensions. They're quantitative, not qualitative. Because just to the point you're making, nobody asks, what's at the other end of these distributions? Like, what's at the other end of this distribution that I'm at the 94th percentile on for obesity, the polygenic score for obesity? But, but So, okay, so I have a high risk for, for obesity. But nobody asks about, what about the other end? Does that just mean, if you have a very low polygenic score for obesity, does that just mean you have a low risk from becoming obese? Or could it mean something entirely different? My hypothesis is that maybe people at the low end are so sensitive to food cues and that sort of thing. Maybe that's where eating disorders lie. Do you know? Because you're... Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. So as Oscar Wilde said, all things in moderation, although he added, including moderation being Oscar Wilde, but you know, maybe being in the middle of these distributions is a good thing. Like ADHD, you mentioned. High ADHD is defined as um, low attention span and high activity, you know, motoric activity. So what's at the other end? It isn't just necessarily, you know, low risk for ADHD, but rather it could be too much attention. Compulsiveness, exactly. People who are overfocused and really have a hard time switching gears. Yep. They have tunnel vision. It's like they're always on Ritalin. Uh, and, you know, on another condition like this is OCD, for instance. Yep. That would also be uh, the high end of conscientiousness, being so uh, meticulous and so orderly and uh, disgust sensitivity is correlated with conscientiousness. And we know that people who have OCD have a fear of contamination. So something that is so positive uh, in a certain level, if it's taken to the extreme, can be really problematic for people. Yes. Uh, so you've been using the term polygenic scores. What exactly are polygenic scores and are they available for people to get to find out where they are on all of these dimensions? Yes. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought this up before we finish because it is the DNA revolution, which is the second half of my book, Blueprint. The first half of the book talks about these sorts of issues we've been discussing, the importance of genetics, uh, non-shared environment, nature of nurture, generalist genes, increasing heritability as time goes by. Each of those is a chapter, actually, in the first half of the book. The second half of the book is called The DNA Revolution. And what it's about is trying, no longer just saying, are things heritable, because they are, but taking the next obvious step in science of trying to identify some of those genes. And it's been a long slog since about the 70s and 80s. Um, I won't go through the whole history of it, but in the 1990s, a tech was developed called genome-wide association. And it, it's the idea of looking across the genome, that is the 23 pairs of chromosomes that we have, um, 3 billion base pairs of DNA to say, where are these genetic differences? And what was discovered early on was that, unfortunately, 
heritability is not due to a few genes because we could have found them. And in fact, the effects are incredibly small, which if you know statistics at all, means you need very large samples to detect them. But how are you going to look at 3 billion base pairs of DNA for very large samples? We're talking hundreds of thousands of people. So you get their DNA and genotype it. But until the mid-2000s, we worked, we had to genotype each DNA difference, each variant, one at a time. Incredibly expensive. You know, so that's why people would look at it just a handful of genes. And that ended up going nowhere. So people said, well, can't we look at genes across the genome? But then, how are you, you know, billions and billions of dollars wouldn't do it for you. And so then the, the final step in the DNA revolution was something called a SNP chip. It's a, it's a little uh, crystal plate about the size of a postage stamp that can genotype hundreds of thousands of these DNA differences very cheaply, very accurately, very quickly. And that's what's made the difference. Because then you say, well, we can't study all 3 billion base pairs of DNA, but we can study DNA differences strategically placed throughout the whole genome so that we assess a lot of the genetic variants in the genome. And we can talk about, well, it's maybe not this variant, but it must be a variant very close to it on the chromosome. So that is genome-wide association. And that's what's changed everything in all the biological, all sciences now, economics, people are hot on it. Even the social sociology types are getting involved in it. And it, it um, was shown to be effective. And, and so it was very exciting in the late, about 2010. But then the, after the euphoria died down, people recognized that the biggest effects are so much smaller than anyone thought. It's not like the biggest effects explain 1% of the variance, but majority of the effects that we find that are significant, they replicate, but they account for less than 0.1% of the variance. And what that means is effects are polygenic. You know, there must be thousands of these DNA differences responsible for heritability. But um, what are you going to do with it then? And that was the final step in the DNA revolution. And that is to realize, as psychologists know, if you've got a bunch of items on a scale in a questionnaire, you add them up and you weight them by something, say by how much they load on a particular concept, and you create um, a scale score. Well, we can do that with these DNA differences too. We can add them up and weight them by how much they're associated with the trait. And that's what we mean by a polygenic score. And that's what's changed everything. And that's what allows us now today to be able to predict 15% of the variance in how well kids will do on these national exams that they take, say in England at the U in the UK, in the UK at the end of compulsory schooling. So these are very powerful and they're getting stronger all the time. If people will know about companies like 23andMe, 25 million people have paid to have their genotyping done in this way I described, because it can tell you if you have single gene disorders and you probably want to know about some of those. Most people will find they don't have any of those, but that's very good news that they're not even a carrier for some of these things. If you're thinking about getting uh, 
mating with somebody, it's kind of good to know that those rare thousands of single gene disorders I told you about, they're very rare, but the vast majority of those alleles, that is, you, genetic effects, you, you get one gene on each, you have a pair of chromosomes and one, a, a DNA variant is called an allele because on one chromosome, it could be different from the other chromosome. That's genetic variation, basically, these allelic differences. So where so people can get their polygenic scores yeah. on 23andMe? Yeah. Do, do they offer that? No, no. What they offer is very good genotyping, you know, for about a hundred bucks. Okay. You can get that SNP chip, it's called, that little bit that measures about 600,000 of these DNA differences throughout the genome. Now, increasingly, you can actually genotype, you can sequence all three billion base pairs of DNA for maybe $500 now. Maybe, you know, some studies are suggesting. And that's going, be, that's going to be even better because that's all she wrote in terms of genetics. That's all you inherit are these 3 billion base pairs of DNA. But right now, there's companies like um, Ancestry.com and 23andMe and 50 other companies that will genotype your DNA. But right now, because it's so new, it's still hard to get good polygenic scores. But what you can do is these companies like 23andMe allow you to download your genotypes for these hundreds of thousands of DNA differences. And there are other companies that you can upload those data to. And even for people who aren't technologically um, au fait, I mean, you're talking about pushing a button <laughs> to download your, your SNPs, your genotypes, and you go to another website and you push a button to upload them. And they do give you... Yeah, they have, they have good manuals. We uh, did... A strategy report. So we got our DNA uh, from Ancestry.com and then you just download the raw data and you upload it to another website. And strategy gives you a report of very specific SNPs that have a lot of good research on them. It shows how uh, well you utilize certain nutrients or certain, uh, you know, nutrient deficiencies that you might have. Uh, genes like MTHFR and uh, uh, this uh, COMT gene, the COMT, um, and all sorts of things that we know really affect us and how they affect our dopamine, our serotonin, our glutathione, uh, methylation, and all sorts of things. So I really recommend that one. Do you have any other recommendations well, for companies that, who well, give would, polygenic scores? On that, I would say that that exposes a problem that I see, and that is you talked about single genes. And there are rare mutations right, right. in those genes you mentioned, but we're talking about one in 100,000 people. So that, that's the problem is they talk about, so, but with that same DNA stuff, uh, genotypes that you uploaded, they could create polygenic scores. And there are some companies that pretend to, but they actually do a crap job at it. There are 50 some direct to consumer testing companies and it's a wild west. You know, there's no regulation out there. And this is really hot in Southeast Asia. You know, the go-to shower gift is DNA tests for your newborn. Again, preying on anxious parents, you know, to say, well, you got to take this test to find out if your kid is you know, going to be this way or that way so you can maximize their strengths and minimize their weakness. That sounds good, but we don't know what to do environmentally. You know, one of the stronger childhood predictors is ADHD genetically. You can predict about maybe 7 8% of the liability. Now, that is a long way from the heritability, which is like 60%. But 
but um, it's still better predictor than anything else we have. And so it doesn't hurt to know maybe that your kid is liable to be higher in these traits we call ADHD, that is lower in attention, higher in activity. And if ADHD had been invented when I was a kid, I would have been diagnosed as ADHD because we were forced to sit in these train-like locked-in desks that didn't move and you had to sit there for hours. And I was bored and this drove me nuts, you know? So I was a bad, you know, <laughs> bad in class, but it was only because of that environment being so restricted. A lot of what we call ADHD is probably positive in the real world. It has to do with energy and new thinking, willing to be able to take chances. And, you know, if you're low attention doesn't mean, you know, you're, you're bored with everything, but things you're bored with, you're really bored with and you don't want to do it. But then you go look for something you really attend to and you can focus in. ADHD kids, you know, you find, give them something they are keen on, as you were saying before, and they'll lock in on it. So it isn't like a total cognitive neural problem of attention deficit, which is what ADHD is, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. It's not a disorder. It's not hyperactivity. And it's not a deficit in this disorder sort of sense. So, um, well, as you can see, I'm very excited about this, but if you knew that, you know, if you were going to have a kid who's high in ADHD, it's probably good to know that, you know, you say, okay, well, maybe they have less attention than other kids are more active. Great. You just burn them out. You know, you give them things to do that are active. You don't make them sit still like other kids. You say kids are different. You respect those differences as what, you know, first step, recognize that kids are different and then respect it. So with personality, it's harder to make these cases, but um, there, are, there isn't a good polygenic score for shyness yet. But that, as I said, is one of the more heritable personality traits. But you can just see that in your kids. You don't need a DNA test to tell you your, your two-year-old is shy. But if you recognize that, what do you do about it as a parent? Well, what you don't do is take the kids to a a birthday party where they don't know other kids and drop them off and say, okay, see you, honey. I'll be back in a couple of hours. You have them go with another friend. You make sure that they're comfortable because, you know, the shyest person you know is not shy when they're familiar and comfortable with other people. So there are things exactly. you can do about this. But what's most important and the way this is going to come down is through the medical area. There are some countries like Estonia, Finland, and now UK is piloting this with a hundred million pound scheme to anybody who goes in the hospital, you get the option of having them do DNA testing. And now it's whole genome sequencing, which is incredibly valuable. And then they'll tell you about your cardiovascular risk, for example. And once you're genotyped, that's it. You don't have to do it again because that's it. That's your genotype. So it's going to happen in the medical area. It's happening already. Because, you know, medicine's moving away from curing diseases when they occur, like waiting till you have a heart attack and then trying to fix it, which you don't do very well, to preventing, predicting, and preventing heart attack. And DNA is by far the best early warning system we have because your DNA doesn't change throughout life. So you could predict early in life. And you know the best interventions happen early. And they're in, in you know, so... Lot to say about that. 
it yeah. happen in the medical I area think that, and then we're all going to know our genotypes and then it will apply to psychology as well. I think that's a really inspiring message and hopeful message because first of all, we know that the more we can predict in terms of genes, we if we know that we have a genetic propensity for a certain uh, medical condition, there's a lot we can do to prevent it. We have the propensity, but then there's a lot of things that can happen uh, between, you know, the moment you're born uh, until you're 50 or 60, when these conditions usually pop up uh, to prevent them from occurring. So that is very hopeful. And I don't think people should think of genetic propensities as, you know, deterministic Oops. or inevitable. Uh, it just shows you that you need to focus on certain things, certain areas in your life. You know, some people can smoke cigarettes until they're 90 uh, and they're fine because they, you know, their bodies uh, detox really well. Some people can't. I mean, it's, it's better to know that uh, as early as possible. And the, the second uh, thing you mentioned about children, I couldn't agree more. And I really hope parents take this message to heart because if you have a child with a polygenic score for, uh, for ADD, that just means that they need more activity. They need more uh, um, novelty, uh, you know, and uh, to try new things. And you can channel whatever trait you find in your child into a positive direction. So I think that this research is really, really hopeful. And I think that's a great place to stop. This has been so fascinating. Where can people go to find more of your work? Well, I'm easy to find. I, I'm not hidden at all. So just Robert Plowman, Google Robert Plowman, and you'll find lots and lots of stuff, including my research portal on um, King's College London, where, where I work at the Institute for Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience. So I'm easy to find. And I'm also easy to contact. You know, I welcome people emailing me. I don't do social media because I, I find it a cesspit and I... I just find my life is a lot healthier <laughs> if I don't deal with that. Any science questions, I'm very happy to get. Wonderful, wonderful. And I really recommend people check out your book, Blueprint. Uh, it's available on Amazon. Uh, and it's a fascinating read. And it, if uh, you know they enjoyed this episode, uh, they can do a deep dive. Thank you so much, Robert. This has been wonderful. I've loved it. Thank you.